0: through 11. And we're going to be talking about one of the most challenging subjects uh, in the Bible, indeed one of the most challenging subjects in our lives, the problem of suffering, the challenge of suffering. So hear these words from Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be thank God. God. She was a 17-year-old girl, blonde hair, blue eyes, beautiful in the prime of her life. She lived in Baltimore, Maryland, and she loved to do the things all 17-year-olds did. She loved being with her friends. She loved horses. She loved playing in the Chesapeake Bay. And it was a beautiful July, When this 17-year-old and her friends were out on the bay, and without thinking, she decided to dive off the pier into the water. She didn't measure the depth, and unfortunately, she dove right into the wrong place. The ground came up much faster than she realized, and she fractured her spine between the fourth and fifth vertebrae. And Jodi Erickson instantly became a quadriplegic. Just a little while ago, she was having fun with her friends. And now, while her friends were preparing to go to college, Joni, whose name is pronounced Johnny, would be fighting for the rest of her life. For the next two years, she was in intensive rehabilitation as she had to learn to live again without the use of her arms and her legs. And amidst that time, all of the questions began to come up. Why me? I love you, God. In fact, Johnny had become a Christian through the ministry of Young Life. She loved Christ, and yet, how could this have happened to her? We are somewhat familiar with some of these questions. What do we do with the problem of pain? Maybe we haven't physically suffered as much as Johnny Erickson Tata. She's now married. That's her last name. But surely we've endured some types of sufferings. Some of us in the congregation have experienced bouts with cancer, some with miscarriages maybe just long bouts of sickness that have stuck around what are we to do with the problem of pain what about emotional suffering some of us have experienced that as well a spouse that no longer wants to be married children that no longer speak to us abandonment by a father or a mother when we were young see all of us have experienced suffering to some degree or another and if you haven't yet give it time Nobody gets through this life without some nicks and cuts. But we have to ask the question, what do we do with this problem of pain? It's the same question that this church in the book of Hebrews is asking. See, they've come to Christ. They've given their life to Him. And because of that, they're suffering. They're being persecuted. Some of them have lost family members who have turned their back on them. They've lost jobs. They've lost status in the communities. They've been evicted from their homes and they're suffering and they're asking the question, what are we to do with this problem of pain? The same question that we are doing, that we are asking. And so we need to tackle that. And so the writer of Hebrews does. He shows us some important things that God is doing something far (laughs) greater than simply giving us a life of ease and comfort. God is in the business of reforming and transforming us into the people that God designed us to be from the beginning. That all of what God is doing, ultimately, is molding us and shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is transforming us, and God is using this world and this life to do so. And so God sometimes allows what He hates to accomplish what He loves. God sometimes allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Because God's goal for our redemption is refined in the furnace of affliction. We need to unpack this problem of pain. And to do so, we're going to look at three things that are covered in this passage. Number one, the proof of pain. That pain, far from showing the abandonment of God, actually shows his loving care for us. We're going to look at the proof of pain. But second, we're going to look at the purpose of pain. What is God actually doing as we receive this suffering and this affliction? What is the purpose of pain in our lives? And then finally, we're going to look at the promise of pain. That there is an end to this cycle of affliction. There is an end product that we can take hope in amidst the problems of pain. So let's look at these three points. Number one, the proof of pain. You know, the biggest problem with pain is this. Pain hurts. Nobody likes pain. It was M. Scott Peck in his famous book, The Road Less Traveled, that began his book by saying, life is difficult. See, life teaches us to run from pain, doesn't it? Remember as a toddler when you would go try to pet the family cat in a wrong way and the cat would reach out and scratch you and you'd experience that pain? The toddler knows, hey, don't approach that cat again in such a way. Or the little toddler walks over to the hot stove and touches it and experiences pain. You see, the stove doesn't care about the baby. The stove is unfeeling. It's just an object. That baby learns to stay away, to run from that particular pain. The truth of the matter is the world is a dangerous place, isn't it? There are many different ways for us to die, to be hurt by the pains of life. And so we have an implicit understanding that all pain is bad. But the truth of the matter is there is one pain which is not bad. It is the pain that is called discipline. It's a word that we see again and again throughout this passage. In the Greek it's actually called paideia. And the true translation of it would not be discipline but actually instructive discipline. Back in the days here in um, in the ancient Near East when you were instructing your child as a parent or giving that authority to a teacher to instructively discipline. The goal of them was not to hurt them. The goal was to shape them and to help guide them in such a way that they would grow up to be mature, complete human beings. Instructive discipline, paideia. Now we're very familiar with this if you're a parent because you do this all the time. I remember when our children were young, And, uh, you know, they'd be out playing in the yard, and without thinking, they'd run right for the street, right? And, you know, it's another place to play. They didn't know that cars were coming by and could take them out. And so we had to give our children paideia. Otherwise, they would ultimately be struck down by a car. And so what we would do, we'd pull them, and we'd go ahead and we'd give them a good spanking. Because they needed to understand the momentary pain so they would not suffer the infinite pain. Now what would happen if maybe my kids ran into the street and then my neighbor got there first to grab them before I could get there? They would go ahead and spank them, right? No, they wouldn't spank them. Why, they wouldn't administer Padilla because they don't care. Nothing against my neighbors, but my neighbors aren't thinking minute by minute about my children's growth and maturity. They're just grabbing them to pull them back. That's why we don't spank other people's children. If we spanked other people's children, it would be because we're frustrated at them and we wish that they'd stop being a pain in the butt. Or maybe that's just me. I don't know. Okay, truth truth that we told here. Okay, the point is that Paideia, the spanking, is proof that we love our children. In the same way, suffering, far from being a picture of abandonment of God, is proof that God is intimately involved in our lives and participating in paideia for our own benefit. Look at verses five and six. My son, do not regard lightly the paideia of the Lord, nor be wearied when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse seven and eight tell us that the discipline we have proves that God is treating us as sons and daughters. If he did not, it would be proof that we were illegitimate and not true sons and daughters. So the question we have to ask is, how do we determine what is the Lord's discipline, the Lord's paideia, and what isn't? See, there are a lot of hard things out there in life. There's a lot of sin out there in life. There are things that happen to Christians that are unspeakable. But in this passage, we see the truth. That everything in life that happens to a Christian is actually Paideia. How do we see that? Well, look at the beginning. The, the life of Jesus is the paradigm for Paideia of the Lord. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. This hostility, the sinful hostility, was actually allowed by God. In your struggle against sin, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. See, the sin that is occurring is actually part of God's overarching plan to develop us and mature us into sons and daughters of God. Well, this begs the question, does this mean that God is actually the author of sin? No, the scriptures are clear on this part. God is holy and pure and righteous without shadow or turning. He is the holy God. God is not the author of sin, but He is Lord over it. Sin is the product of the devil and the fallen world, but God is Lord even over sin. A great author once said that the suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith, if we are believers, and governed by God for the purifying of our faith. Christ sovereignly accomplishes his loving, purifying purpose by overruling Satan's destructive attempts. Satan is always aiming to destroy our faith, but God magnifies his power in weakness. See what's going on in this Hebrew church, this church in the Hebrews, all the persecution, the abandonment, the suffering, all of the things that are going on propagated by sinful men against the church are actually part of God's overarching sovereign plan for their maturity. All is God's idea, whether we can understand it or not. I remember when we decided to adopt Maria, we decided to bring Maria into our house to be her parents. And we went down to get Maria and to bring her in. You know, the movies are always interesting about adoption. They spend all the time talking about how hard it, It takes to get the child. And then there's the end right there. And they lived happily ever after. It's like a fairy tale. But the truth of the matter is nothing could be further from the truth. See, Maria's life that she had experienced in the orphanage, as painful and twisted as it was, was the only life that she knew. Those people were her family, even though they weren't really. They weren't the kind of family that Ellen and I and her brothers could provide for her. And so there needed to be a separation as Maria was taken away from her old way of life and brought into her new way of life. And unfortunately, that could only take place kicking and screaming. Remember, when I I had to be up here for a lot of the fostering time, Lee Ellen was down there, but I was there for the first part. And Maria going to bed was like the Tasmanian devil set free. It was unbelievable. You see, she was used to sleeping in a bed with another one of the girls. And so but now she was under the loving care of her mother and father. But she didn't understand that. And so she experienced the pain of separation when we would walk out of the room. And she would literally scream and cry for 45 minutes. And we would just have to sit there and endure it day after day after day. See, we knew that this is what was best for her. But it didn't make it any easier for us. And it didn't make it any easier for her. See, we're experiencing, if you are a Christian, you have the loving hand of God upon you. But you will experience this paideia. And it's easy in the middle of the suffering to lose faith. Maybe you've experienced, or are experiencing some of that pa- paideia right now. I talked earlier about cancer. You know, you are the one, you were the statistic that got the message that you are the one that has cancer. And so you're going to have to experience operations. And your body's going to have to be ravaged by radiation and chemotherapy and all of the things that are going on that make life hurt. And it's easy to lose faith and say, God, because of what I'm seeing in my life, you've abandoned me. But far from it, my friend. Rather, it is proof that God is in charge. God is sovereign over all things. What this life intends for evil, God intends for good. And rather, this is God's paideia as he shapes you and conforms you into the likeness of Christ. And so what must we do? We must reframe our circumstances. We must reframe it not to looking at our circumstances, but rather to looking at his character... To understand, to reframe that this, in fact, is his loving paideia, however painful that it is. It was Johnny Erickson that said, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promises, and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. When we are hurting, when we are doubting, We must refrain our circumstances. How do we do that? We ask him for strength. We ask him for faith. It's at that time when we lean into him. Remember my wife would walk in and after she had cried herself out, not understanding, she would lean her head into uh, Lee Ellen's chest looking for comfort. Because the truth is, the, the greater the pain we experience in this life, the greater the blessing we can understand of God.
1: Let me ask you a question Who do
0: you think knows God better, Joni Erickson, Tata, or me? Who has suffered more? Joni Erickson, Tata. It's in suffering that we experience the proof of God's love. The goal of our redemption is refined in the furnace of affliction. And so sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Well, that's the proof of pain. We need to move into my second point, the purpose of pain. You know, it sure would be easier if we could understand what God was up to, that we could endure the pain that we're experiencing. Well, through this passage, we can see that God has an ultimate purpose in our life. Look at verse 10. Our earthly father disciplined us for a short time as seems best to them. But God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. What does that mean, sharing in his holiness? Well, we know a little bit about holiness. This word holiness here is used the only time in the New Testament right here. Um, and, And what it refers to is the essential attribute of God's character. The essential attribute. Now, we know many things about God's character because God is personal. And God has told us about himself through his scriptures. For instance, we know that God is love. But God is more than simply love. God is righteous. God is caring. God is faithful. These are all attributes of God's character. Now, we know when someone has a tribute that is sort of a a core, we use an intensive in the English language. For instance, if my son is good at something, we don't only say that he's good, we say that he's very good. Well, in Hebrew, they don't have a word like very. So all they do is they say it twice. He is love. There's no he is very loving, he's simply love, love. There's only one word in the entire Old Testament that is used in triplicate to describe God, and that is the word holy. He is holy, holy, holy holy the word holy means other it means incomparable it means different see there is god and there is us there is one who is set apart 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 and his name is god listen to isaiah 40:25 to whom will you compare me or who is my equal says the holy one Lift up your eyes and look on the stars. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name? He is the Holy One, the incomparable One. But we see something very interesting, that this incomparable One wants to relate to His creation. So in the Old Testament, what did He do? He called a people out of all the rest of His people to make His own. He set them apart. Their name was Israel. They were to be related to the one who was other because they were set apart to be other, to share in His holiness. They weren't given their own holiness, but rather a share, a portion. And we see in the temple, if you remember when the temple was being created, the very nexus where God dwelt on earth, there was a group of people. How could the common come into contact with the holy. They had to be set apart or made holy. And so you see in Leviticus this constant, all of the utensils and how they had to be just right and washed and purified and cleansed so they could be brought into the presence of the other one. They could be set apart. They could be made holy. And then the priests, and only a certain group of priests who were pulled out of the common. The sons of Levi, who had to be washed and they had to wear certain clothes and observe certain rituals so they could walk into the presence of the incomparable one. They could be set apart in order to be with the one who was set apart. They could be made holy. Because without holiness, says the scriptures, no one will see the Lord. Rather, they are unclean. And so we see that suffering is a process by which God is making us holy, giving us the opportunity to share in his holiness. We must ask the question, if suffering makes me acceptable to God, is, is life simply some sort of hazing process, some sort of fraternity induction where if you suffer enough, you finally make it into the club? No, not at all. Because we see that this suffering occurs in the context of relationship. See, the very fact that we're suffering is the fact that we have been called God's children. The fact that we are already God's sons shows that it is in the context of relationship that this is occurring. Rather, it shows that we simply are not mature yet. And so our Heavenly Father, who justified us, is now in the process of of sanctifying us through the role of suffering. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, we must mature so that we may share in His holiness. And the truth of the matter is there's only certain things that can be learned when we suffer in this life. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. For when we are in pain, we take our eyes off of this world and we lift them to God. John Piper said, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say that every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through suffering. Samuel Rutherford said that when he was cast into the cellars of a he remembered that the great king always kept his wine there. See, it's in suffering that we come to the end of ourselves. And we can come to the beginning of God. When we come to the end of our strength so we can see the incomparable strength of God. When we come to the end of our joy so we can experience His joy. When we come to the end of our life so we can know His life. Should we seek suffering? No. We should never court suffering or complain about it. But we should see it for what it is. God's painful process for remolding us into holy Probably about eight or nine years ago when I was driving on 264 coming back home from work. it's a busy day. One of those traffic stop and go type things. But we finally got moving. I was a little bit distracted. Things stopped a little faster than I thought. The car in front of me jammed its brakes too late and rammed the car in front of it. And I wasn't paying attention, but that car stopped so soon that I jammed on my brakes, and guess what? Boom, right into the back of that car. And the front of my Ford Contour, I don't know if you remember, it's kind of like a little Econobox, box, you know, a little small sedan. The front just crumbled like an accordion, just boom, just like that. Airbag didn't go off, so we were okay there, but it got, it got crushed pretty bad. And as I got out and I looked at this car, I thought, this thing is totaled. It's done. Well, I did a very smart thing. I took it to the Ford dealership because Ford makes the Ford Contour. you know what they said? We can fix this. We can fix this. <laughs> and so for the next five weeks, they went to work on my Ford Contour. Now, the problem was everything was bent and twisted, needed to be remolded, reshapely stretched out. You know, if I could have been that car sitting there, I would have been asking the question, what are you doing to me? This hurts. You're supposed to make it better. You're only making it worse. But the hand of those mechanics, those trained mechanics who knew the car, knew the final picture of what it was supposed to be looked like. See, they had a vision for what it was supposed to be. And so they pulled and they twisted and they scraped and they repainted. And at the end of those five weeks, I went out and there was my car, and I could not tell one difference between what it was and what it was now. All analogies are imperfect, and so is this one. Because the reality is that our heavenly creator, that knows us better than anyone, has a template and a design that we've never seen. See, when our car will finally roll out of the shop, it won't be a Ford Contour, it'll be a Ford GT which is the most expensive race car that Ford makes. It costs about $150,000. See, God is not only reforming us from sin, but he's transforming us into the likeness of Christ, the one who we were supposed to be made perfect in before we ran ourselves off the road with sin. And so we have a new template, a new design, a new destiny that will ultimately be ours when we finally get out of this painful shock life <laughs> and so what are we supposed to do during this process if we reframe our life to understand the problem of pain we must remain and resist understanding the purpose of pain we must remain faithful as we undergo suffering we must remain faithful by resisting sin Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Remember last week I talked about that uh, he was using athletic analogy and he was talking about the race of faith. Let us run the race of faith. There were actually five events in the pentathlon. The fifth was boxing. And he's using the language here that was used in boxing in the pentathlon. And what they would do is they would wrap their hands in leather thongs And they would go at each other and they would see who could last the longest in this battle. And to be sure, eventually, blood would be spilled because this thing was a fight. And what the writer is saying here is that this thing called life is a fight in which we are called to resist sin just like we were in a boxing match with it. Think about it. You're in a situation at work. And your boss comes to you and he calls upon you to compromise yourself, to do something unethical, maybe even illegal. And so you simply say, I can't do that. And you get fired because of it. And now you're out of work. And you're looking around. And you're wondering, you're right in the middle of the battle. Because bills got to get paid. And you can't find a position. And you're tempted to say, God, you've forgotten me. I did the right thing. But you've forgotten me. What the Bible is saying here is resist sin. Remain faithful. God is doing a work in your life. You may not be able to understand it. But God has a plan. The very fact that there is suffering shows that you have a Heavenly Father who cares for you. And so we must resist sin by looking to His Word. By seeing how God wants us to act and stepping forward by faith. We must resist sin by going in prayer to God. God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Walk with me through this. We must resist sin by going and seeking others who will encourage you. You know, there's really something interesting in a boxing match. They go and they pummel each other for a couple minutes and then what do they do? Go back to the corner, don't they? They got their quarter man right there. Hey, don't quit. You're in there. Just keep fighting. You're wearing him down. You'll get there. Keep going. See, we're meant to be corner mates with each other. Pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him up. Isn't that what community group is supposed to be about? Where you can kind of pull in. Man, I got beat up today. Isn't that what our men's, group, our men's prayer and our women's prayer and our Wednesday morning study is supposed to be about? Encouraging one another. You're not going to get through this life without some nicks and scratches. And that's why we need one another. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so we must finally turn our hopes to the promise of pain. Yes, there's a purpose in pain, but at the end, there is a promise of pain. Pain is hard. We must reframe our understanding of what it is. We must resist sin. But there's one thing left. We must remember. Remember that we're not alone. I so appreciate verse 3 that says... Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinful man so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In the midst of our suffering, we're invited to consider Jesus who endured such hostility. If anyone has a right to say to God, why are you doing this to me? It would be Jesus. Because Christ never did anything wrong. To be sure, we wrapped our own car around the tree, didn't we? But Christ did not but Christ understood and underwent suffering so that we can never say God, I may not understand what you're doing, but I do understand that you understand my pain. See, the truth of the matter is Jesus underwent pain before us because he was the ransom payment, the cost to buy us back, the cost so that we would not be totaled. For us to be remade, Christ had to be deformed. For us to be made holy, Christ had to be made unclean. And for death to work backwards in our lives, it had to work forward in Christ. And so we must remember his suffering. When we want to quit, we must remember the promise of pain that Christ resisted and that Christ is with us now. Because if we must not only remember his suffering, we must also remember his glory. For Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, the joy of redemption comes after the furnace of affliction. And the ultimate furnace of affliction was the tomb. It's interesting when you take a pot and it's misshapen and you reform it, what do you have to do? You have to put it in the fire, it's got a cure. But at a certain point, you pull it out. And there it is, reformed and glorious. And so in the picture of Christ, we see the one who was deformed for us, who was put into the kiln for three days, who suffered the ignominy of death, and yet came forward, not with tattered flesh, not with a crown of thorns, but rather in glory. The scriptures show us that Christ is the first fruits of a new humanity that is to come. And so Jesus is the picture of what we will ultimately be. And so Jesus is reforming us, reshaping us, until one day we too will come forth from the grave as gold. Joni Erickson Todd is now 62 years old. She runs a ministry called Joni and Friends. She's worldwide known for her beautiful paintings. She paints with her mouth. And along the way, she's gained some perspective on life. Joni says, in a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old tattered Everest and Jennings wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair. But it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robes of state and put on the indignity of human flesh. At that point, with my strong and glorified body, I might sit in it, rub the armrest with my hands, and look up at Jesus and add, The weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned, the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me the grace to learn obedience in mine. In hardship, Joni learned obedience. She learned about Jesus Strength, strength, patience, and love. And so we must do the same. The Christian faith is meant to be lived moment by moment. It's not some broad general outline. It's a long walk with a real person in which we are shaped, sometimes painfully, sometimes gently, into the image of Christ. And so we must consider Christ. Perhaps you are in the middle of a long about the suffering yourself you have chronic physical physical problems you have pains and aches and sorrows you must remember Jesus who knows not only suffering but he knows your own remember to look to him as your source of strength when you're weak as the source of your joy when you weep and as the source of hope when you are in despair the joy of salvation is refined in the furnace of affliction You may be in the kill, but God is not finished with you yet. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And he surely loves you. And so in the end, you too will come forth as good as gold. That is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Lord, we do thank you for your word. That we can make sense of this world. That we can make sense of suffering the proof of pains that you love us. And the purpose of pain is that you're not content with us being total human beings, but rather you're lovingly reforming us and reshaping us, not back into what we were and swore, but what we were meant to be, sons and daughters in the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that amidst this struggling, we would look to you. When we're suffering, when we're crying, when we're at the end of our rope, that we would look to you who suffered before us, and gives us the ability to suffer in the midst of our circumstances. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.